The reading is taken from the book of Judges, um, chapter 2, verses 6 to 19, 243 in the church Bibles, if you'd like to follow it. Um, it's headed in the Bible, Dis Disobedience and Defeat. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods and the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all round, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to, God's, to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Graham. Please keep the passage open in front of you. And uh, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you have given us your instruction. Uh, 
and you have revealed to us yourself who you are and what you have done. And Father, please would you help us to respond to your word this morning, to understand it and to live it out. Amen. What was really going on? That's one of the questions we've been asking over the last few weeks, particularly about what happened on the 20th of May 2020. What was really going on? What was really going on at Downing Street? And subsequently, as more revelations have come out of other parties, boozy-doos, what was really going on? But more than that, we want to know more than that, don't we? We don't just want to know what was going on. We want to know who knew what. We want to know what Boris knew. And we want to know what his thinking was when he went for 20 minutes to that party. What was he thinking really? Did he really think it wasn't a party? What was he thinking? What was he feeling? We want to know more, don't we? And you probably, in due course, can have to pay money for the autobiography to find out what he thought in years to come. That will probably be produced, won't it? In Judges, Judges chapter 2 we get a second introduction to the book. You see that, if you have a look down at verse 6, you see um, it starts there with, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, etc. And then verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Well, we've seen this already in a way. Beginning of chapter 1 says, after the death of Joshua. So it's like the, the writer is starting the book again. He sort of started the book, chapter 1, after the death of Joshua, and now he says, after the death of Joshua. He's starting again, but in chapter 2, he's giving us what God was doing, what God was thinking, what God was feeling. So it's a rerun almost of chapter 1, but it covers actually the whole book. But it's an important chapter because it reveals what's really going on in the book. Not just about God, but about God's people. And what we see in this chapter and in the reading that Graham read is that as you go through the book of uh, Judges, there is a cycle that keeps going around and around and around, and it's described in this passage. But like I say, in it, we are told not just what happens, but what God was doing and what the people were really doing. And the cycle starts in in verse 10. And it starts, and this is our first point, here's the beginning of the cycle. Uh, So first point, the Lord's people did evil and served other gods. See that with me, would you? Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal Uh, serve Baal and the Ashtoreths. So here's the beginning of the cycle. What's really going on? The people reject God and turn to other gods, the Baals and Ashtoreths. Why? What's going on? 
As we said last time at the end of the book of Joshua, the previous book, everyone has pronounced, has declared their faithfulness to God. But here they turn away. Why? Verse 10 tells us, just have a look again. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Now that's striking. That you've got here a generation that comes up that is raised up and they don't know, there are two things they don't know. They don't know what the Lord has done. Now that is staggering. This generation comes up who know nothing of what God has done for his people. Which is staggering because in the law God had told his people various ways that they were to keep the memory alive of what God has done. They had annual festivals to remember things God had done for them. And this is a bit of a warning for us, just the need for us to keep remembering to keep remembering what God has done for us. We have them in annual remembrances as well, don't we, of, uh, of Christmas and Easter. It's not good enough, is it, just to celebrate those things. We've got to remember what God has done. And you may feel, as you get older, that the events come round quicker and quicker and that you're kind of going, OK, we're hearing it again and again and you can sort of feel like you've heard it over and over but it is so important that we keep saying the same things year on year those same stories because we've got to remember what God has done for us and we need to keep taking communion together Uh, it's so important to do that because that is another remembrance of what God has done we mustn't lose what God has done for us but strikingly it isn't just that they forget what the Lord has done Do you notice it says the other thing that they didn't know? They grew up who knew neither the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. And in the Old Testament, in the the Bible, when it talks about knowing someone, it doesn't just mean knowing about them. It means relationship. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't have an experience of relationship with the Lord God who'd brought their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. They didn't know him. They probably knew the name of the Lord, but this says they didn't experience relationship with him. And throughout the Bible, again, we need to be confronted by the fact that actually, of course, at the heart of Christianity is knowing God, being in relationship with him. It's not enough, is it, Uh, just to know about the Lord? We may know our Bibles very well, but that doesn't mean we know the Lord. It's not enough, is it, Uh, for us uh, to do all the outward things, the things like going to church or um, taking communion or baptism or those kind of things. None of them guarantee that we know the Lord. And we may know certain truths and agree to them. Christianity is not at heart actually just about ticking various doctrinal boxes of saying, yes, I believe there is one God in three persons. I believe Jesus is both man and God. I believe he died and rose to life again. It's not just about ticking those boxes. We need to know the Lord. The Bible challenges us in the Psalms. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
That is an experiential thing, isn't it? It's saying, come to know God, experience him. Well, we might ask, how do I know whether I know the Lord? Jesus helps us in this in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a a wonderful sermon to read. I'd encourage you to to read it um, through. In it, Jesus is contrasting over and over again. He's contrasting two groups of people. The religious people and those who know the Lord. It's interesting in the sermon, that's who he's contrasting over and over again. Religious people versus people who know the Lord. And as you go through the second half of the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is uh, that those who know the Lord, it, it comes back over and over again in different ways that they relate to God as their heavenly father. That's the key. They know God as their father. So when they pray, Jesus says, they don't just babble empty words and they're not doing it to show off. No, they go off into a room by themselves and they pray to their father who is unseen. And as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you see actually that's key. Those who are in relationship with God relate to God as their father. Do you relate to God as your heavenly father through Jesus? Do you spend time alone with God in prayer? talking to him as your father because you love him. Well, it's unsurprising that they fell away. This is what was really going on. They didn't know the Lord and they didn't know what he had done. And it's not surprising they fall away if if they don't know the Lord, if they don't experience the goodness of God, if they don't experience that relationship, if there's distance between them and God, but they are surrounded by the gods of the people around them. And don't forget, these gods, uh, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, they would have been very tempting for the Israelites to, to follow. They were the people of the land before the Israelites had come in there. A lot of what they were about was about fertility and a lot of the practices, the the rituals were erotic rituals that they would have been taken part in and and they would have been very tempted to go to that when their relationship with the Lord felt distant and actually didn't exist and yet surrounded by these other gods so tempted to go after them. Again, a warning for us that if we're distant from God, If we're not experiencing that father-child relationship, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are, uh, uh, that it is purely subjective. No, no. But but if we're not experiencing that relationship of father-child with God, if that is distant, and yet we're surrounding ourselves with other things, as we thought about in the confession, if we're we're tempted by money and pleasure and leisure and uh, and all those sorts of things to, to provide us with security and and fulfillment, it's not surprising that we will drift or fall away from God. We need to learn from uh, the people of Israel to be in relationship with the Lord God. That is the start of the cycle. The people did evil, served other gods. The second part of the cycle Let's have the second point. The Lord's red-hot anger is aroused. And you see this, verse 12 again, at the very end of verse 12. If you're following, do you have, have a look at the verses? End of verse 12. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. 
They were in great distress. Now, again, if you just looked at the events, what was happening to this nation, you would think, well, all that's going on is they're losing. They're losing battles to surrounding nations who are coming and overtaking them. But God is telling us here what's really going on. And what's really going on is he's angry with them. He is angry. Verse 12, they, uh, they aroused his anger. Verse 14, in his anger. It is literally, and his nose burned. Isn't that a great description? His nose burned. He is angry with his people. Now, don't shy away from this. It is tempting to. But God is a passionate God in the right sense of the word. I wonder whether that's in your thinking when you think of God. Often we think of God as passionless with all the emotions of a brick. But he is not like that. He reveals himself to be full of passion. To, uh, we need to be careful, of course. We are right to think God does not experience emotions the way we do. Our emotions sort of come and go. They blow around like a balloon in the wind, don't they? One gust and they're this way, another gust, they're that way. You eat some chocolate and you, suddenly your emotions change. You get more sleep, suddenly your emotions change. You go to bed in a rage, angry with someone. You wake up the next day and go, ah, I think I overreacted on that one. Is that the way God is? No, it is not the way God is. We know from James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, the Lord does not change like shifting shadows. And that is very good. It would be terrible if God were as changeable as us. We wouldn't know, would we, day by day? Is, is something that we've done, is that going to anger him or not? Is he going to overreact or not? Well, that is not the way God is. God does not change like that. His emotions don't swing like that. No, his emotions are, uh, are true and are good and are totally predictable, which is why he can say uh, in verse 15, uh, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. He'd sworn to them. He said, this is what's going to make me angry. And he was right. It is utterly predictable. God, uh, yeah, God is in, does have these emotions. He's, he's described to us in this kind of way. And in God's perfection, it means he knows perfect love, perfect anger. Now, you might say, well, I don't like the idea of an angry God. I like to think of God as, some, as simply a God of love. And yet the two must go together. A God who is never angry is a God who doesn't really love. As Dale Ralph Davis in his book on Judges, wonderful book on Judges, says, such anger should not surprise us. It is the price we pay for being loved. Imagine, after all, a husband who discovers proof that his wife has been unfaithful. What would you expect that husband to do? If he were to say, ah, well, you win some, you lose some, you'd be outraged. You'd think you don't love your wife. No, if he loves her, he will be angry. So too God. He loves his people. And he calls their going after other gods a prostitution in verse 17. And so his anger is aroused. 
And it's no small thing that if we run after other gods, when we seek ultimate security and joy and fulfilment in other things, when we take good things and make them ultimate things and put them in God's place, his love and anger are aroused. And the result is, in verse 15, that the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. They needed to know their real enemy now was God himself. And isn't this the God we want? A God who loves us so much that he hates unfaithfulness? Okay, but more than this, we also see, so that's the second part of the cycle, we also see the third part, the Lord's persistent love in raising up judges. Verses 16 to 18, have a look at this. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors who'd been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So again and again, God raises up judges. Now, like we said last week, you, do, you aren't to think of judges as in people with wigs and, you know, sitting in court in that kind of way. They did help with, with the justice, but actually they're more warriors or warrior leaders who will lead in uh, fighting. And God raised up these judges to save his people. Why? Again, what was going on? Why did he do this? Well, we're told in that last verse, verse 18, said, For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now, there's nothing to indicate here that they were groaning, crying out to God, saying, God, we're sorry, repenting, saying, you know, we we wish we hadn't done it, we'll follow you from now on. There's nothing in there to say that that's what they were doing. They're just groaning. The weight of the oppression is so much that they are just crying out. Not to God particularly. And God is stirred in his love for his people. He looks at them in the pity of their oppression and just can't keep going like that. He raises up the judges because he loves them to save them. And he does it over and over again. In the book of Judges you get at least, uh, there are 12 who are said to judge Israel. Just think of that over and over again. God raising up a judge, and yet they fall away. Raising up a judge, they fall away. Such unfaithfulness, if it was in a marriage, if someone was unfaithful 12 times, you'd probably say to the spouse, it's time to call it a day. It's time to give up. God won't do that. And it wasn't just during the time of the judges that they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful over and over and over again throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It just keeps coming back and back and back. And yet God is so patient in his love, so persistent in his love, he sends them saviour after saviour after saviour. Now do you see in this, in these last two parts of the cycle, we've not quite finished the whole cycle yet, but in this one and the previous one, that there is a kind of tension in God. There's a kind of tension there, isn't there? There's his red-hot anger, his anger at their unfaithfulness, their infidelity. He is angry with them, and yet he loves them. It's like he, he, he can't quite destroy them because his love means, no, no, I'm going to send a judge. 
I'll send a saviour for them. And like I say, this continues throughout, um, throughout the Old Testament. Later on in the Old Testament, you get it very clearly in the book of Hosea. When uh, God is, has come to a point where he's saying, I'm going to judge them. And yet you, you feel this tension in God's heart. Let me read a little bit of it to you. He's decided he's going to judge them, his people. He's going to send uh, people against them. Verse 6 of Hosea chapter 11 says, A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. And then he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Do you feel that tension? It's that I'm so angry with you, I'm going to send punishment, but I'm not because I love you. And this tension keeps going throughout the Old Testament. And you think, how will this ever be resolved? Surely at some point God has just got to say, I'm going to do away with you. But yet his love keeps coming up. The answer is the cross, the cross of Jesus. Because there God's anger was fully poured out on Jesus. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's anger poured out, but his love shone in all its glory that he would take the punishment on himself that you and I deserve. The fire of God's anger poured out and God's love shone. And there the tension is resolved for us. That God does not need to wipe us out or destroy us because his anger was poured out on his son. And then we come to the last part of the cycle. The enticing slavery of sin. You see, you've had God's people turn away from God, reject God and serve other gods, the false gods. God's anger is aroused. God's love in sending the judges. And now the enticing slavery of sin. Because whenever the judge died, the Israelites went back to serving other gods. Except verse 19 says it wasn't just going round and round. Have a look, verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. This, what looks like a cycle, is in fact a spiral, going down and down and down, and things get worse and worse. Which says something to us of the nature of sin. Sin is not merely doing a bad action or saying a bad word, or thinking bad things. Sin, we are told, is a slavery. That's what Jesus says. John chapter 8, verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Yet we don't think of it as a slavery. And that's the incredible thing about it. We think we're in complete control, that our idols are serving us, while all the while they are tying us up in ropes and chains. And so the people here keep going back to their idols and keep getting worse and worse. 
And the rest of chapter 2, which we didn't read, tells us that God therefore will not drive out the people for the Israelites anymore. They will remain in the land as a test to see if the Israelites will turn back and obey God. There was, you see, always the possibility of them turning back to God, but they never took it. And we see how bad things got in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Have a look at that. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. All in disobedience to God. They weren't to intermarry and they weren't to serve the gods of the land and they were supposed to drive out the people of the land. And if you'd said to the people of Israel at the end of the book of Joshua when they were proclaiming their faithfulness to God, if you'd said to them, this is where you'll get to, they would have been shocked. They would have been appalled. I'm sure they would have said, we would never get that bad. But that's the nature of sin, isn't it? It grabs hold of us. We think we're in control of it, but it takes us and takes us further and further away from God and takes us to a point where at some point you go, how did you get to that? Don't you know people who've got like that? We must be very careful, mustn't we? One of the most dangerous lies we can tell ourselves is, I can handle this. I can flirt with temptation and I won't get burnt. Don't take sin lightly. Don't dabble in it. Don't give it the slightest look in. Don't start down the paths of sin thinking you can control it and that you're sure you'll be okay. Many have gone before us down that deadly route and we are no better than they. If that is you, then throw yourself on Jesus' mercy and ask him for forgiveness. He is the only one who can set us free. You can't do it yourself. And so this is the cycle. Uh, actually, let's have the cycle on the screen. Let's, let's go for the next slide. I took this from a, a website. Uh, I, I know nothing about the website other than it had this image on it, but it's, uh, it, it's from someone else, the caffeinated theologian. Sounds exciting. But here's um, a, a summary of, of the cycle of the judges that you can see. So you start at the top, the people turn from God. God judges uh, by delivering the people to their enemies. The people turn back to God. Sometimes they turn back to God. Sometimes they don't. They just cry out um, because of the oppression. God sends a judge to rescue the people and a period of peace under the judge. And it just goes round and round. Well, downhill and downhill and downhill. The spiral goes down and down through the book of Judges. And we will see this. Now, I'm going to set you some homework. Which is, uh, I would love you, if you can, just uh, between this time and next time, to read about Othniel. Uh, in this sermon, we're sort of supposed to be covering up to chapter 3, verse 11, but I won't do that in this bit. But could you go away and have a read of Othniel? So that's verses 7 to 11 of chapter 3. It's not very long. And you'll see in it all of those stages. You'll see the cycle going round. And as we go through the book of Judges, we'll see it over and over and over again. What was really going on? Well, God's people, because they didn't know the Lord, rejected God. God was angry with them, yet his love persisted. And yet the slavery of sin drew Israel down and down. Let me lead us in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a passionate God, uh, that you hate sin, you are angry at our rebellion, and yet we praise you that you are a loving God whose love is faithful and persistent. And we praise you that we see both uh, at the cross of Jesus, your anger at our sin and your great love for us in sending your son to die for us. Father, thank you that we see who you are. We see our sin as well. And we ask, please, that you would protect us from falling or drifting away from you. Help us to learn the warnings from this passage. Amen. Joanne.